to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Wednesday, May 8th, 2013, and this is podcast number 311. My name is Ben Stone. A couple quick things today. Um, I want to thank the donors who are making it possible for us to, uh, for my wife and I to go to Pork Fest and to the uh, Michigan uh, Liberty Festival, and uh, I want to thank you for your ongoing support, and that is how we're getting there. I want to thank whoever the people were who have already responded and followed the links from the Bad Quaker website and bought uh, precious metals from our new sponsor. And I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce their name until I talk to them over there and find out how they pronounce it. But uh, but either way, it's a really good time to buy metals. If you look at the Dow, uh, just Google Dow historical charts and look at the trend in the last 10 years of the Dow and take a look at what happened in 2008 and take a look at where the Dow is today. And I'm not giving any kind of promises of anything, but I'm saying this. Uh, my wife and I have pulled everything out of all stock-related savings of, of 401ks, everything. And we've put it all in, in tangible things that we can put our fingers on, not in paper, but real stuff that we can touch and hold and hide and drive and move around if we need to. Because looking at, the, at, the, uh, at that chart should tell you something about what's in our near future. Okay, so one quick commercial here for Bitcoins, not bombs. If you're going to pe- uh, uh, pork fest, pork fest, if you're going to pork fest, be sure... And get over to Bitcoins Not Bombs and get one of those T-shirts, and then uh, find my motorhome, and I'll buy you lunch if you if you come over and tell me that you heard me talking about it and you bought a T-shirt from Bitcoins Not Bombs, and you bought it before you went to Porkfest, so that you're wearing the T-shirt when you get to Porkfest. Come to my motorhome, let me know, and I'll buy you lunch. Okay, so now let's get right into this. There's been a lot of upset about, uh, and my last podcast was about this uh, this whole thing with Adam Kokesh going to Washington and uh, having a gun rally, gun march, or whatever. And I'm not going to really get into all that today. I'm done talking about that. But that has led to the situation where I need to really emphasize how important it is to fight wisely, to play it smart, to not just run into things without really thinking about them. Don't ask how to fight a government. Learn how to fight the state. Uh, I'm going to start off by quoting uh, The Art of War again because I think it's really important. And I'm going to go over some of the things that I mentioned towards the end of the last podcast. But I'm going to play these things out a little bit more in depth so that you can really understand where I'm coming from on this. You have to know your enemy and you have to know yourself. If you don't understand the nature of your enemy and if you don't understand your enemy's weaknesses and strengths and if you don't really honestly understand your own weaknesses and strengths, you have no chance. You just have no chance. The supreme act is to subdue your enemy without fighting. Appear weak when you're strong and strong when you're weak. All warfare is based on deception. When able to attack, appear unable. When active, seem inactive. When near, make your enemy believe you're very far away. And when you're far away, worry your enemy constantly. Make him believe that you're very near to him. Disturb his sleep. Make him wake up in the middle of the night and wonder what you're doing. When you're far away, but not when you're up close. Every battle is won or lost in the mind before it's fought on the field. The victorious win first, then they go to war. 
while the defeated go to war first, and then they seek to win. Every battle is won or lost before it's engaged. So how do we fight against an overwhelming, tyrannical government? We don't. Striking at the government is missing the root. Government is just a branch. Faith in the state is the root. Faith in the state is our enemy. Faith in the state is the thing that drives, that controls, that wields government. Faith in the state. The the faith that your neighbor holds. The faith that the guy at the gas station holds. Faith in the state. Your enemy is not uh, Barack Obama or George W. Bush or or John McCain or Nancy Pelosi. That's not your enemy. Those people are not your enemy. Your enemy is the people around you on your own street that believe that what people like Obama do is good, that believe that what people like Obama do is just, is right. People, when they, when they believe that stuff, that faith is your enemy. And unless you understand that, you will never, you will never, you will never find victory. You will never find liberty and you will never be free. Um, I'd like to recommend to everybody the book by Larkin Rose, The Most Dangerous Superstition. You really have to understand the nature of the beast that we're fighting. And I, and I use that word with a capital B. It is the beast. And that's what we're fighting. And this is a serious process. This is not just a fad. This is not just running around waving signs and having fun. And you want to go down and you want to have revolution? You want to have a war like some people are calling for? Um, you know, reading this stuff with Adam's uh, uh, activities, and people are openly saying, why, why not uh, just, you know, why, uh, why march with the rifles on your back? It's time to go in there. And, and that one idiot talking about if he had a half a million people or a million people or whatever he said, he'd go in there shooting and just kill them all. That kind of nonsense, that kind of stupidity is our enemy. That is not our friend. This is not helpful to our cause. Revolution is war. And war is an aspect of statism. Revolution is the destruction of wealth, the destruction of property, the destruction of lives for the sole purpose of forcing your will on others. That's not libertarianism. That's not, that's not the zero aggression principle. That's nothing like liberty. That is as far removed from what we stand for as anything can possibly be. You can't have revolution unless you're an aspect of the state committing it, because what it really is a revolution. A revolution is the act of replacing one government with another. Revolution cannot produce freedom for the same reason a pig can't produce an egg. Revolution is the exact opposite of a market force. Market forces are by their nature voluntary. Now imagine for yourself uh, how a voluntary revolution would take place. Let's see, you'd have You'd have the people backing the current government, and you'd have the people wanting the new government. And if it was a, a, a market-driven voluntary exchange, then one group would go to the other and be like, hey, uh, you know, we want to we put in our new government, and we want to kick out your old government. And the old government would be like, hmm, I don't know if I want to sell. What are you offering? And the new government people would be like, oh, you know, we'll give you like 10 bucks for it. And the other guy's like, no, nah, I got more than 10 bucks invested. We're going to have to go a lot higher than that. And, they'll, and the new one's like, well, what are you thinking? Like, like 11? No, I'm thinking more like 20. 20 bucks? No way. I'm not giving you 20 bucks for that worn out old government. Well, what are you going to do? Well, let's compromise. Okay, well, um, how about 19? 19? No, no way. I'll, I'll give you 1250. 12.50? I'm not taking 1250 for this. All the work I've put into this government, I'm not giving you 12 I'm not taking 1250 for this. All right. Let's get serious about this. How about 16? 16. Well, I don't know. I think we're in the ballpark. Can you do 1650? 1650. 1650. I don't know about that. I might have to check with my wife. I guess I could probably do 1625 if you can go to 1625. All right, 1625 it is. So if it was voluntary, revolution would look like something like that. It would, be, it would be a negotiated deal, or it would maybe be like an auction. Here's, an, here's, a, here's, a, a voluntary, here's a voluntary revolution in a free market. Okay, who'll give me 20 bucks for this old government? 
Can I have a bid for 20 bucks? 20, 20, do I hear 20? Do I, can I hear 18, 18, anybody? 18, 17, 17. You see, that would be a voluntary exchange. That would be zero aggression. But that's not revolution. Revolution is when one body of people decide that the existing government is no longer tolerable and they go in and they kick that government out and it's almost always by violent means, but not always. But in the end, what they're actually doing is replacing one government with another. That's what happens 100% of the time. And the vast majority of the time, people die. Goods are destroyed. Wealth is destroyed. Lives are destroyed. That's what revolution brings you. Murray Rothbard once said, he, he wrote an article called Just War. And he said in that article, and I'll, I'll read it uh, word for word here, he says, to be specific, the two just wars in American history were the American Revolution and the War for Southern Independence. Well, once again, folks, Murray was wrong. Murray was absolutely wrong about that. Both of those wars were acts of aggression performed by statists with the intention of establishing a new government. You don't believe it? Read the document. What does it say? Right there in the Declaration of Independence. It says that the purpose of that is to establish a new, a new government. It says when, uh, I should have I had it in my notes. But you can read it for yourself. It's right there in the first lines of the Declaration of Independence. That the whole purpose of that is to establish a new government. That was the purpose of the uh, what Rothbard called the American Revolution, which was not a revolution. A revolution would have been where the colonists were t- trying to take over uh, Parliament or trying to take over, you know, the government in London. It wasn't a revolution. It was a it was a war of independence. But uh, above and beside that, it was in that sense just like a revolution. It was one government attempting to take over the 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 the, the territory of another government. That's all it was. It was not in any way uh, a, a, an anarcho capitalist um, activity. The consistent anarcho-capitalist has to reject the use of war because war is, by its very definition, a conflict between governments. How can you be an anarcho-capitalist and want a revolution? When a revolution is war, and war, by its definition, is a conflict between governments. So a consistent anarcho-capitalist has to reject the idea of a revolution. It's got to be out of the question. It is against the zero aggression principle. Now, thinking about the uh, the American War of Independence, contrast the activities of the colonists with their, uh, you know, with their Boston Tea Party and the, you know, the Sons of Liberty that went around and essentially were terrorists. I mean, they destroyed people's private property, they burned people's houses, they did all this stuff in the build up to the actual War of Independence. And uh, and I might add, those activities were not, those things were not uh, uh, anarcho-capitalist uh, activities. You can't abide by the zero aggression principle while burning a, a, a merchant's house because, you know, because he's selling the wrong product that you've decided that, you're, that your group is boycotting. That's not an anarcho-capitalist activity, and that's what the Sons of Liberty were doing. So, um, so now co- contrast what the colonists were doing to obtain their independence, contrast that with what the Scotch-Irish clans that came into Appalachia, how they obtained their independence. And how did they do it? They just went into Appalachia and behaved as though they were independent. They didn't go and petition the British government for independence. They didn't go and burn the governor's you know, mansion or whatever. They didn't try to take over any ports or take over any cities, nothing like that. They just went out there, to a place where nobody else wanted, where no one else could live. Even the Indians really didn't want those mountaintops in the, in the, uh, in the heights of Appalachia because they weren't suited for the hunter-gatherer lifestyle of the, uh, of the Native Americans. So they go into land that nobody else wanted, that the king of England had forbid any English uh, settlers from going into, and, uh, and they just did it. They just went out there and did it on their own. They didn't ask anybody's permission, and they didn't try to fight with any existing government to do it. They just went out there and did it. 
Now, I'm not saying that fighting's out of the question. I'm not, I'm not trying to pre- present some kind of pacifist model to anybody. Fighting is not out of the question. It's Very often it's been noted by different writers that guerrilla warfare tactics can be used while uh, remaining within the zero aggression principle. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there's never a time that anarcho-capitalists can't defend themselves and defend their property. And, and I'm not saying that there's not a time to fight. What I'm saying is know your enemy and know yourself. Now think back about the Appalachian people. In the middle of the uh, American War of Independence, most of Appalachia was not involved. There were some mercenary fighters. There were some uh, mostly from the north, from up in Pennsylvania and so forth. And there were some some very enthusiastic um, uh, Appalachian people that fought on both sides of the war. But the bulk of the Appalachian people, the bulk of the Scotch-Irish people that lived uh, deep, they were called the uh, Overmountain people because they were on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains. And most of those people were not involved and really didn't care, didn't want, didn't hear, hear any news, didn't want to know anything about what was going on between the colonists and the British because they had already rejected both those two societies. They had already decided on their own that they were going to go out and be separate. So they, they had nothing to do with those people. And then um, there was an event called the Battle of Kings Mountain that came along. There was this British commander named Ferguson and he had a force of about 1,100 men, and they'd been going around throughout the South uh, wreaking havoc. And, um, and the folks in Appalachia really didn't care that much. It, it wasn't their war. They were, you know, they were already independent from England, so what, what did they care what some English officer was doing in the South? They were not in the South, and they were not English, and they were not colonists, so they didn't care. And then Ferguson made a horrible mistake. He perceived that there was uh, too much support in the Appalachian Mountains for, uh, for the colonists. And so he announced that he was going to march through Appalachia and lay the land bare by the sword and by fire. Well, that didn't go over very well with the Appalachians. There had been a, a group of colonists opposing Ferguson. There had been about uh, 350 um, uh, colonist militia that had been attempting to uh, to fight Ferguson. Ferguson had about 1,100 men, and they, and those were mostly militia as well. Those were mostly, uh, you know, uh, what are they called? Uh, loyalists, colonial loyalists that were supporting the British. So Ferguson's marching around, causing trouble. About 350 colonists were fighting against him, and there were some pretty bad, uh, pretty nasty battles during that time frame. And, uh, and Ferguson had the upper hand. But then he made this announcement that he's going to go through Appalachia and lay the land bare. Well, the word went out throughout the mountain folk about this, about this threat of fire and of sword. So about 1,100 of these uh, over-mountain men, the Scotch-Irish, these, these crazy Appalachians that, that had gone over the mountains where they weren't allowed to go and were living their life for like 100 years they'd been over there. Well, about 1,100 of them come out of the Appalachians, and they found Ferguson. They cut him down. And then they largely went back home. Now, they would have done exactly the same thing to George Washington had he come stomping around in the Appalachians threatening them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have cared one bit. They'd have done that just as quick to George Washington as they did it to Ferguson. You're not going to read that in typical history books. You're not going to read that uh, on a Wikipedia page. But the history is there. If you dig through and you look for it, you'll find it. So make no mistake, I'm not teaching a lesson in pacifism. Um, when Bill Bupert was on the, on the uh, podcast here, I can't remember if it was the first time or the second time we were talking. It, might, it may have been both times. We were talking about pacifism, and Bill made the statement that pacifism is the path to extinction. And he was dead right about that. Pa- I'm not preaching pacifism here. I'm teaching that you, if you're going to fight, if you're going to put your families and your life and your wealth at risk, then you better know yourself, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, know what you can sacrifice and know what you can't sacrifice. And then you better know your opponent. You better know what his strengths and his weaknesses are. And, and only a fool strikes an opponent according to their strength. 
So how do we fight back against a tyrannical government? We refuse to engage the tools of our enemy. Remember, government is not our enemy. Faith in the state, that's our enemy. When I get back from this break, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get real specific about some things. According to a recent survey of Bitcoin users, the most common use of Bitcoins was as donations. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Murphy with Free8, the world's first Bitcoin-based charity. Join me as I moderate a panel discussion about Bitcoin and nonprofit organizations at the Bitcoin 2013 conference. On the panel will be Angela Keaton from Antiwar.com, Carla Garrick from the Free State Project, and Teresa Warmke, my partner at Free8. Bitcoin Not Bombs is launching us into financial freedom this May at the Bitcoin 2013 conference. To learn more, visit BitcoinNotBombs.com. BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have a helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% uptime guarantee. And they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to badquaker.com first. Click the button for HostGator. And thank you for supporting badquaker.com. Okay, now before the break, I mentioned Bill Bupert. And here's a guy that you can learn things from. Here's a man who knows about war. Um, and I mentioned that you have to know yourself and you have to be honest about your strength and your strengths and your weaknesses. And keep in mind, uh, we're not fighting a revolution. We're not fighting a, a physical entity. We're not fighting the people in Washington. We're not fighting the government. We're fighting a battle of the mind. We're fighting a war of principles. We defeat the state by fighting on the battlefield that the state doesn't understand with the weapons that the state has no resistance against. Like I said the other day on the podcast, we have the market, we have peaceful exchange, private voluntary association, voluntary networks, alternative communications, alternative currencies, underground businesses, profits, vast untaxed profits, alternative documents. You know, I said in the last podcast that it's silly to use a magic marker and, and a piece of cardboard and draw yourself up a, a, a paper you know, license plate and hang it on your car, right? I think a lot of us realize that. Well, what about manufacturing? And I mentioned this the other day. What about manufacturing alternative identifications for both people and vehicles? And I'm not, stock, and I'm not talking about uh, you know, magic markers and cardboard here. I'm talking about real, passable identification. Let me read something to you. Um, I'll put a link in today's show notes uh, for this article. This is coming out of Olympia, Washington, and it says, and this is coming from uh, something called, where to go? Kitsap Sun? Kitsap? Kitsap Sun is the, uh, uh, evidently a, a newspaper from the town of Kitsap, I'm assuming. Okay, anyway, and, and again, I'll put a link in today's uh, show notes. In crafting legislation motiv- motivated by a Kitsap Sun public records request, the Department of Licensing, or DOL, acknowledged for the first time in about three decades that it was issuing fake IDs to local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies for under- undercover investigations. Not even former two-term governor uh, Chris Gregory, however you pronounce his name, I'm horrible with names. Anyway, uh, not even this governor, uh, also once the state attorney general, knew about the program, a spokesman for the governor confirmed on Monday. Lawmakers in Olympia are grappling with how to erect safeguards that will prevent the program from being abused all while being in the dark about exactly how it's being used. Now, just think about that for a minute. Washington State realized, because this was exposed by this local newspaper, Washington State realized that they had a huge problem, that within the state, within their own agencies, they were generating such a large quantity of fake identifications that it was starting to become a problem. They didn't even, within their own organization, the governor, 
uh, attorney general, the people that should have known this kind of stuff, they didn't even know it was going on. And the lawmakers who are trying to figure out how to erect safeguards, it says, to prevent the, uh, the program from being abused, they don't even know exactly how to do that. Now, who are they thinking it's going to be abused by? Well, the context of the story says... Uh, or gives us the impression that the lawmakers are assuming that the law enforcement, uh, uh, federal and local law enforcement uh, agents, will abuse this. And they will. They probably have. It, this, the story also states that um, uh, the state's Department of Licensing has issued, now check this out, more fictitious driver's license to the CIA since 2007 than any other government entity. So as big of the, as big as the problem is of uh, of the state of Washington issuing false identification for local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies, an even larger number of fake licenses have been issued to the CIA. Now think about that for a minute. And this is a problem that the state government looks at and goes, holy crap, we got to do something about this. But they don't even know what to do about it. Now, just let that roll around in your head for a second. Now, today, within our community, within the liberty movement, there are very good people living in exile outside of the U.S., and they can't, and they can't come back into the U.S. And think of all the ones that are in jails within the U.S., folks, good folks that, are in, that were in the liberty movement that are now impotent, stuck in a jail. Um, you know, I could go through names, but, I mean, what's the purpose? Just think in your mind. You know that they're out there. We need to be able, we need to have this capability we need to be able to hand alternative documents to key individuals uh, within our movement so that they can shift and continue with their work in a different capacity or in a different location. We need that capability. We need to be able to do this before we risk, before we risk landing anybody else in jail for years or before we risk having all your guns taken away in the mi- in the middle of the night by a SWAT raid you think about that you you go on YouTube and you blast out a bunch of nonsense about going to Washington DC and shooting people which some people have done over this Kokesh thing or you just go on uh, on YouTube and talk about marching on Washington uh, armed or in some of the words uh, uh, that this is, uh, that we're putting Washington on notice, and some, some of the words used was that this is open rebellion. You're using these words, and then what's going to happen at 3 o'clock in the morning when the SWAT busts down your door and comes, and comes in and takes all your guns and puts you up on charges for, uh, for threats of terrorism? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Time to hire a lawyer and start pleading a bargain, right? Is that what you're going to do? If you want to commit civil disobedience, then use your brain and make it count. Don't follow the failed footsteps of dead martyrs. Learn a lesson. Think about something here for a minute. Is India the land of freedom that Gandhi died for? Do you think India is now, you know, free? As much as Gandhi fought government to try to get his people free of the burdens of, uh, of violence and of aggression. As much as he committed his life to fight for that, and he died for it. Is India a free land now? Hardly. Do Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton really represent what Martin Luther King died for? Do you think that's what he died for? No. Did Jesus die so men would erect massive stone cathedrals and golden altars? Did Jesus die so bigots could use religion to destroy other people's lives? Is that why he died? Do you think the guy who turned water into wine and was lawfully killed by a government would approve of using government laws to restrict alcohol sales in the so-called Bible Belt? Is that why Jesus died so you can't buy whiskey in Kentucky? Or why you can't buy 
a beer on a Sunday morning in Ohio? Is that why Jesus died? Did Jesus die to protect your delicate eyes from seeing somebody having a beer on Sunday? Is that why he died? And for the folks in Europe who think, who are listening to this right now, and they're thinking, what is Ben talking about? Well, there's a large swath of American territory uh, controlled by these uh, ridiculous states that um, where you're not allowed to buy alcohol on Sunday, or you're only allowed to buy certain types of alcohol. You can buy wine, but you can't buy beer, or you can't buy uh, liquor, but you, some places you can buy wine, some places you can't buy wine. And, and, and it all varies from place to place because this, this, this mishmash of laws that we have over here. And it's all ridiculous. And this is all done under the guise of religion. It's, uh, you know, to a large extent, um, Baptists and Pentecostals that pushed through these re- ridiculous um, uh, alcohol laws, or they call them blue laws, but they're all over in the Bible Belt in the United States, and they vary from place to place. There are places in, in Kentucky and Tennessee where there are actually um, uh, alcohol distilleries that produce, legally produce alcohol, and you can't buy the product of that, of that distillery in that county. Now, how ridiculous is that? Is that why Jesus died? So that people using his name could do that kind of work? So that's why I'm telling you, don't follow the failed footsteps of martyrdom. You're not Jesus. You're not, you're not Gandhi. You're not Martin Luther King. And even if you were, once you're dead, you're not fighting anymore. The fight's over for you. What did, what did, what did, uh, what did uh, the doors say? The war is over. For the unknown soldier. You see, folks, dead men don't fight. Do you want to make an impact? How about this? Learn how to hack. Learn how to become a hacker. Drive your brain and force yourself to learn how to become a hacker. Now, it's been many years for me. Um, I taught myself programming languages. I taught myself how to hack. I taught myself those things with hours and hours, midnights and later, while working during the day. Now, unfortunately, as many of you know, I've had a series of head injuries, and it literally wiped my ability to do all those things. It just wiped them out of my head like that, like I never understood them. One day, I knew how to program. Two weeks later, I had no idea what I was doing. I, you know, got worse and worse. And I'm not saying that for sympathy. I'm saying that because, because I, I have the memory of knowing the amount of work it takes to learn how to hack. And at one point, it was my job. I was working through a contractor that subcontracted to another contractor that contracted to NASA. And, and for one, for a whole year, it was my job to hack in legally, they knew I was doing it, but I w- it was my job to hack into NASA's uh, network and, and literally search from computer to computer looking for files that had been lost and hidden away by engineers who had been laid off or had been moved to a different uh, uh, program and all of their data was locked away under behind passwords in some computer and nobody really knew where it was. So I spent a full year working for NASA just developing hacking tools to go through their network, open up um, uh, password-locked computers, and, and search through and find keywords looking for the documentation they were looking for. And I'll tell you something. It was surprisingly easy. It was surprisingly easy to get into NASA's uh, computers, to, to go past their security, to go past their, their uh, passwords, and and here's the other thing. Once I figured out the pattern of of what the NASA uh, engineers were using for passwords, I could pretty much break all their passwords once I figured that out. Now it took about oh my, it probably took six or seven months before I discovered their password patterns. But once I figured that out, I, the whole system was cracked. We need we all of us in the Liberty Movement need hackers. And, and we're not going to go out and recruit them someplace else. We have to bring them up within us. Now, I am no longer capable of doing that. I'm stuck sitting at a mic talking. But you can do it. And if you can't do it, somebody you know can. 
We need hackers. Learn how to hack and then learn how to teach more hackers and teach them to be better than you are. We need to learn how to set up and take down networks. We need to learn how to establish secure networks that only we can see and that only we can use. We need to learn how to gain access into official computer networks, not for the purpose of harming them, but for the purpose of manipulating data. Now think about it for a second. Think about that story I just talked about in the state of Washington and think about all the false identities that are set up, that have been set up in the state of Washington for the CIA and for these other agencies. With a fully functional pro-liberty hacking network and some talented graphic art, graphic artists, which we have some really talented graphic artists in our movement, perfectly undetectable identification and even complete alternative identities can be established and maintained. If you're serious about liberty, then get past this fad, get past the Ron Paul rallies, get past voting for legalizing pot, get past asking government permission, get past all that and make liberty your mission. If you're serious about winning, then you have to do these things first. You have to lay the groundwork before, before you can ever build on a site you have to do the groundwork. You have to get the uh, using the, the using a, a building metaphor. If you've got a bare site there and you want to build a building, the first thing you have to do is remove the obstacles that are in the way, trees, rocks, whatever. Then you go in and you dig in and you and you put you put the the raw plumbing in and you put the you know the the raw electrical and you do the underground all the underground work you if there's going to be a basement you dig it you put in those walls you put in the foundations you put in the footers you do all that stuff before you start to build the structure and if you're really serious about this about liberty then you have to do the groundwork first Remember, every battle is won or lost before it's engaged. I'm, I, you know, and I mentioned underground businesses. Uh, I mentioned profits, vast untaxed profits. Well, all right. I realize this is a family show, and I have a lot of uh, families listening, so I'm going to be very careful how I bring this up. But I'm just bringing it up for pure shock value and just to make you think about something that maybe you've never thought of before. I want to mention three words for you. Bitcoin's adult novelties. Now, um, very often people who are buying adult items would like to keep privacy as one of their top issues. They have a lot of concerns about privacy. And Bitcoins provide a private way to exchange money for goods, right? There's massive opportunities for a garage business right there. Just think about, um, you know, if you have raw silicone, not hard to get a hold of, or raw raw latex, not hard to get a hold of. If you have these items and some basic molds, with one garage, you can make a pretty good living. A garage and an internet connection and a Bitcoin wallet, and you're off. There you go. Think about if you had a barn, if you had access to a clean, um, insulated barn, and there are a lot of those in the Northeast. If you had, um, you know, the whole Free State Project could be funded out of one barn just using this concept. Just think about it for a minute. Think about how you could run an entirely invisible business where your customers want to be invisible. And you want to be invisible. And especially if you could set up a couple of uh, secondary identifications so that you had different locations that you could send and receive mail from. You see where I'm going with this? Now, this is just one thing. And I brought up that one topic partially for shock effect, but also just to get your eyes open. There's so much out there that we can do to bring money into this process, to bring, because how are you going to win uh, even a government? If they're going to fight a war, the government needs money. Now, they have the advantage that they can steal it from other people or they can print it up out of the air. 
in, in that case, stealing the wealth from, from people. But they have those advantages. We don't have that advantage. If you're going to battle the state, you need to realize what our strengths are and what the state's weaknesses are. And right there is the perfect market. And that's just one thing, just something that popped into my head. We need to build wireless mesh networks. Now you're, you're sitting there saying, what's a wireless mesh network? Well, go over to badquaker.com and look in today's show notes. And there's a link there that explains what a wireless mesh network is and how easy it is to set up. Now let me just uh, expound on this just slightly. With, um, with a few wireless devices, and you could do this in the country, but you can also do this in a, t- in a town or a city. In a city, it would be extremely effective. With a few wireless devices, you can set up an entirely private network, off, essentially off the grid. It's off the Internet. But you can also have the capability of connecting it into the Internet. As a matter of fact, if you do it right, you can actually provide a way to provide Internet connection to people that the government has no capability to shut down. And it's all right there. It's right at our fingertips. All we have to do is do it. You don't even have to be all that great uh, you know, of a techie or, or a hacker or anything like that to understand how to do it. It's not difficult. Now, when I get back from this break, I'm going to have some more for you. Stick with me. I'll be right back. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy. Amazon has great prices and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can even get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of, plus it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give badquaker.com a tiny portion of the purchase price. It won't cost you any extra, but you will be supporting this podcast. Thank you. Folks, I'd like to talk to you about Survival Gear Bags. Survival Gear Bags is about more than just a great place to get gear bags and survival kits. Check out their website by clicking on the banner at badquaker.com. Survival Gear Bags has everything from wise food storage products to tactical equipment to camping supplies to clothing and rain gear to hydration and purification supplies. Plus, Survival Gear Bags is known for its service and it's owned and operated by people who understand and adhere to the zero aggression principle. So click on the ad for Survival Gear Bags on the Bad Quaker website and get the stuff you need. Thanks, folks. Okay, let's have a real quick recap here. So what would you rather do? Would you rather go to Washington, D.C. with a rifle, get arrested as you climb out of your four-wheel drive pickup truck with your uh, Confederate flag on the antenna, and have your gun taken away, and never have the legal ability to carry a gun again? That's in column A. Column B, run a private business from your garage and make a massive amount of money, untaxed. Column A. Column B. Think about it. Which is the better idea? Which could produce more end result for liberty? Begging the government, or yelling at the government, or crying at the government, or voting, or supporting a candidate, or making a buttload of money. Which do you think would be more effective? I don't know. Ask somebody like Doug Casey. Who do you think has a more has a bigger impact on on uh, on the liberty movement? A guy like uh, me who just talks into a microphone, or a guy who scribbles chalk on a sidewalk, or a guy who marches towards Washington with a gun, or a guy who's making millions of dollars and just goes to a foreign country way up in the mountains, up in up in uh, you know wine country and buys six or seven hundred acres and says, hey, I'm free. Ta-da, I win. Who has the best idea? I think I would rather have a few million dollars and live off in South America somewhere than march on Washington. But even if you're committed to staying within the country that you're in, even if that's your plan, some of us, we don't have a choice. I just don't have the capability to earn a few million dollars and move to South America. I, I, as a matter of fact, 
I don't even have the capability to get out of this country. For me, this is a cage. I can't get out of it without, you know, essentially sneaking across a, a border some way. I'm one of the people in the in this in the United States who is essentially caged into it. I can't leave. But even if I could, I don't know if I would stay or if I would go. But either way, if you think about it, what is better to get yourself arrested, to get to get uh, your guns con- confiscated, or to make money and make an impact with that money? I like money. Okay, so I mentioned mesh networks. Well, here's something that's maybe even a little easier. Um, how about a uh, how about an FM radio station? How about building your own FM radio station for about $250, $300? How would you like that? How would you like to be, especially if you're in a decent-sized city, how would you like to be able to reach out and broadcast liberty-related media plus whatever music fits your taste or whatever, you know, whatever it is that, that fits your taste and broadcast it out over 5, 6, 10 miles around you? for about $250, $300. How would you like to do that? What kind of an impact would that have? Now, you know what? It's an act of civil disobedience. You're breaking the law. Yeah. But what kind of an impact would that have? What kind of an impact would it have if you could reach out into an area where there's a mall or where there's a high school or where there's a college and put out a liberty-related, a liberty-oriented radio station that plays maybe, uh, maybe a combination of uh, favorite types of music along with liberty-oriented material, and there's plenty out there, go over to LRN. There's, there's ways at lrn.fm where you can tap into their feed and rebroadcast their stuff. And, you get a, and if you want to do it, then here's how. Okay, Follow the link. I'll go to badquaker.com, follow the link in today's show notes, and, and um, I'll provide a link there to a breakdown of how you can have your own radio station for about $250. You do that. You set up your radio station, and then you email Ian Freeman, and he'll help you put your radio station on the air, and he'll help you, um, and I'm volunteering Ian here, I realize that, and maybe he'll yell at me later for it, but he, he is, as much as anybody else, wants to get the LRN signal out there and he'll show you how to do it, or he'll at least talk you through it. And you can get the LRN signal on your local radio station and send it out to that local college or local high school or local mall or local prison. Think about that for a minute. What if you live really close to a large federal penitentiary, and those guys in there, maybe they're in for a year, two years, five years, but they're going to come out eventually. What if you could get the liberty message to them in a way that gives them some kind of hope rather than just being stuck in that cage. Wouldn't it be worth about $250 to set up a radio station? Keep in mind, folks, government is not going to give anyone liberty. And like I said before, begging, bribing, threatening, voting, running for office, or using the existing government justice system will never give you the freedom that your soul cries for. But the prize is there. It's there and it's waiting to be taken. You know, I mentioned uh, Liberty Transportation Network before. We need to be able to move goods and people from New Hampshire to Canada and back again without crossing through borders and asking permission and showing papers. We need to be able to do that. We need that. That's maybe today, maybe in 2013, maybe that's not important. But I'm telling you, if we're going to go down the path that we have to go to win this thing, we need to be able to move people and goods out of New Hampshire into Canada and back into New Hampshire again. We need that capability. And once we get that capability, once we can do that, we need to be able to move those packages from Montreal to Winnipeg and from Winnipeg to Fargo, North Dakota, to Denver to Albuquerque, to Phoenix, to Austin, to Little Rock, and back to New Hampshire. We need to be able to do that. We need, whether it's a trucking network, whether it's, you know, guys that work at UPS, whether it's inside people in existing corporations, or whether it's people who absolutely look 
in every way like they're hauling tomatoes. It doesn't matter. We need the capability because, you know, today massive amounts of drugs are smuggled across the Mexican-American border and lots of things are smuggled across the Canadian-American border. But all that stuff is pretty much useless to us. But the day is going to come when people within the liberty movement are going to need to move people and material. And, and, and those uh, identifying papers that I was discussing earlier would make it a lot easier. But we still need the infrastructure, some type of, of network of transportation to move stuff around like that. And if we begin working on it now, before the heart of the battle begins, then we've won the war when, it's, when it comes time to really fight this thing. We need to have the capability to make an activist disappear out of Washington, D.C. and reappear in Denver with a whole new name and a whole new verifiable past. We need that capability. You do these things first. You win before you fight. You win before you fight. You don't start a fight and then learn how to fight. One of the most common mistakes that were made, and this is done really, really, just over and over and over, but one of the most common mistakes made by generals is that they end up fighting the current war using the tactics of the last war. This was, uh, I'll make the argument pretty much with anybody, that that is exactly why Robert E. Lee uh, faced defeat the way that he did. Robert E. Lee chose to use Napoleonic tactics. Now, he was a master of those tactics, and fortunately for him, uh, the northern armies were pretty much using the same tactics. Um, And, you know, boy, hmm, look at the time. I can't go into that war. But, um, yeah, so suffice it to say that Robert E. Lee lost his war because he chose to fight using the tactics of the last war, Napoleonic tactics. If he had learn the lesson of Napoleonic tactics, he would have won that war, but he didn't learn his lesson. Uh, um, in World War I, there was a French general that started out the war named uh, Joseph Joffrey, and, uh, and he had no concept of the shift in technology that had taken place in the, in the 10 years prior to World War I. So there were these ridiculous um, frontal charges that they would attempt to do in World War I, where, where men would just jump up out of a trench and run headlong right into, the, uh, right into machine gun fire of the, uh, of the Germans that were sitting there waiting for them. They would, they would literally blow whistles. They would have lines and lines and lines of guys hiding uh, down in these trenches. And the and the um, and the field, uh, uh, what are they called? The the supervisory people, whatever. I can't remember the word escapes me. Anyway, uh, the commanders would blow these whistles, and on the whistle, uh, on the sound of the whistle, all these French soldiers would jump up out of the trenches and run towards the German machine guns, and the German machine guns would sit there and just butcher them, and they would fire until the barrels got so hot that they'd have to change barrels just cutting down the French, just one row after the other. And the Germans weren't much smarter about the way they were fighting the war. But the problem was, and what uh, Joffrey couldn't understand, was that technology has shifted, and you couldn't fight that war the way they had been fighting previous wars. Because You have to keep in mind, uh, the French had been picking fights with the Germans for like 70 years. The World War I was just the culmination of um, well, it wasn't even the culmination. It was just a one moment in the uh, in the process. But World War One was the extension of the wars that had been going on between France and Germany for the last seventy years. And Joffrey was dumb enough that he was fighting that war uh, using the tactics that they had used in previous wars. And then uh, he got kicked out. Robert uh, Nivel took over and was equally incompetent. He was still trying to do the same thing. He didn't learn the lesson that he's, he's standing right there looking at it, and he didn't learn the lesson from the last war. Uh, there was a guy, a French guy named André Maginot, and um, after World War I, 
he assured the French people that he was going to save them from the next war. The next time the Germans decide to come into France, they're going to be ready for them. They're going to put up this series of fortifications and trenches and tunnels and, and pillboxes and, and all these different activities. They're going to spend millions and millions of dollars to fortify this, uh, this frontier line between France and Germany. And after spending all this money and almost crippling the French government, spending so much money on this Maginot line, then, uh, then the Germans uh, attacked and just drove around it. Went around the, you know, went around the side, hit it from the side, hit it from the back, passed it, uh, just avoided it, um, because the German army had mechanized and they used modern tanks and they literally came at the French so fast that they didn't have time to even u really utilize the Maginot Line. It wasn't entirely useless, but it was like ninety-eight percent useless. All that money spent preparing to fight the next war using the tactics of the last war. But Hitler was equally stupid. Um, they, you know, Hitler's government spent a lot of resources, resources they didn't really have to spare to build this massive battleship, the Bismarck. And by World War II, battleship warfare was over. So the entire, all, all of the resources, all the time, all the effort, all the lives spent to get uh, the battleship Bismarck built out to sea and sunk. All of it was wasted because battleships were no longer an effective tool of war by World War II. Now, you look at that now and you say, but we still have battleships. Exactly. That's my point. Today, the U.S. military is completely, uh, I shouldn't say military, the U.S. Navy is uh, completely prepared to fight the last two wars. But as we may see in the near future, the United States Navy is not prepared for the next naval warfare. There was a guy named William Westmoreland. He was the main, he was the main general that orchestrated the Vietnam War. And the entire time, he, he was fighting the tactics of World War II in Vietnam. And, um, you know, it's been said that, that the U.S. won every battle and lost the war. That's not true. That's really not true. The U.S. won some significant battles. But uh, really, Westmoreland mismanaged the whole war from end to end. And that was only a piece of why Westmoreland lost that war. Another piece of why was he had to deal with Robert McNamara, the uh, you know the, the ex Ford executive that was trying to run the the uh, the war the way he had run Ford Motor Company, and that was as equally stupid. So so why am I bringing up all this stuff? Well, because each one of them didn't learn the lesson. They didn't learn the lesson of history, and they weren't prepared for the next battlefield. They weren't pre prepared for the next style of war. They had not adjusted to the technological shift that had taken place. And that's what I'm talking about now. You look at what's, what happened in Egypt, what happened in Libya, what's going on now in, in places like Cyprus and what's, what's happened in, in you know, Greece and, and Spain. and all. You look at all of that and you say to yourself, do I really want that? Is that the process I want to see? Because what I'm talking about is not is not that, is not taking on government like that. It's not, it's not open warfare. It's not rattling your saber at the government and then just waiting to get blasted. It's not spending the rest of your life in jail or spending the rest of your life forbidden from owning any firearms of any kind. That's not what I want. What I want you to see is that the method I'm at, that I'm trying to express to you is to sidestep the government by making an alternative to government and an alternative to the processes that are around us that are doomed to fail. So don't ask how to fight a government. Learn how to defeat the state. Know your enemy and know yourself. The supreme act is to subdue your enemy without fighting. You appear weak when you're strong, and you appear strong where you're weak. Remember that all warfare is based on deception. When able to attack, appear unable. When active, seem inactive. When near, make your enemy believe that you're very far away. And when you're far away and safe, worry him. 
Make him stay awake at night worrying about you, thinking about you. Make him believe that you're at the doorstep. Every battle is won or lost in the mind before it's ever fought in the field. The victorious win first, and then they go to war, while the defeated go to war, and then they seek victory. Folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks.